This is the Moral Science Podcast, and I'm your host, Amber Cazell. In this series, I get to interview experts in my favorite subject, the scientific study of human morality, virtues and vices, evolution of morals, the judgment action gap, character development, the philosophy of morality, transcendent experiences, researchers' moral biases, cultural values, plus the obligatory trolley dilemma. We are going to talk about it all. Dr. Richard Schwader is the Harold H. Swift Distinguished Service Professor of Human Development in the University of Chicago's Department of Comparative Human Development. Dr. Schwader's anthropological work has received numerous awards, including the John Simon Guggenheim Fellowship, the American Association for the Advancement of Socio-Psychological Prize for his essay, Does the Concept of a Person Vary Cross-Culturally?, and, in 2016, the Lifetime Achievement Award for the Society of Psychological Anthropology. His fieldwork in Orissa, India, led to his pluralistic theory of the Big Three ethics, which influenced the later development of several psychological theories, including moral foundations theory. His recent work concerns the accommodation, or lack thereof, in multicultural exchanges in Western liberal democracies. Today, we discuss his three ethics and the challenges of moral multicultural exchanges. agreeing to speak with me today. I have been really looking forward to this conversation. Um, you've been very influential in moral psychology, which is sort of the niche that I've grown up in. And um, I just am glad to finally be talking to the source of a lot of a lot of people claiming to be based off of your theory. Um, <laughs> so would, first, can we just start by hearing a little bit about, about your background and how you became interested in anthropology and cultural psychology? Okay, so I'm a cultural anthropologist. I also describe myself as a cultural psychologist. I view cultural psychology as a interdisciplinary undertaking, bringing together anthropologists, psychologists, linguists, philosophers, sometimes even biologists, who have an interest in psychological or mental differences between people, peoples by virtue of them growing up in different, let's call them historical, ethical, or moral communities. Um, uh, within anthropology, there are many tribes. Um, most anthropologists are cultural anthropologists, but broadly, anthropology as a discipline also is a thinks of itself as having four fields. It includes cultural anthropologists who are probably 70 or 75% of the anthropologists, at least in the United States, um, anthropological linguists, archeologists, and biological anthropologists. So that's sort of the lay of the land of anthropology as a profession. Within cultural anthropology, there are different groups or tribes. And uh, I suppose my main tribe would be called psychological anthropology. <laughs> um, it's a tradition of anthropology that goes way back, uh, but is interested in similarities and differences in psychological or mental functioning um, of peoples in different historical, ethical traditions or cultures or cultural groups. Um, Margaret Mead was a psychological anthropologist, a well-known one. Ruth Benedict was a psychological anthropologist. Um, Robert Levine is a famous psychological anthropologist who's the person who originally recruited me to the University of Chicago. There's a Society for Psychological Anthropology, which was created in the early 1970s. Um, and we meet as a group um, every two years in a standalone meeting. And then we meet every year at the American Anthropological Association meetings, having sessions that are focused on psychological anthropology. Uh, my own teachers in graduate school at Harvard, um, John Whiting, for example, who was my thesis advisor, was a famous psychological anthropologist, and he has many progeny, and there are various descent or ancestral lines that one can trace within anthropology, and uh, that's one of them. Okay. So now, how did I get interested in cultural anthropology? Um, I can, you know, one can only speculate, of course. And there are many. There are many sources. I, I sometimes have thought that a public service advertisement 
that was playing on television in the early days of television back in the early 1950s, which I remember vividly, might have had an impact on me. And that public service advertisement was basically a little jingle, which went like this. George Washington liked good roast beef. Heim Solomon liked fish. When Uncle Sam served liberty, they both enjoyed the dish. Hmm. And um, now, you know, George Washington, of course, is an, the iconic founding father of our country. He, his, let's say his preferences or tastes for food there were standing in, you know, liking bloody red meat. Um, was standing in for a certain kind of population, a white Anglo-Saxon um, Protestant population. Uh, but who's Haim Solomon? Haim Solomon was a buddy of George Washington's and a financier or banker who helped bankroll the American Revolution. Hmm. And, of course, he was a Jew. And it's one of the reasons that advertisement was on in the New York City area, which is where I was living. Um, at that time, I, someone told me, I haven't validated this, that it might have been sponsored by Levy Rye Bread, but it was basically promoting the idea of um, patriotism as tolerance for cultural and religious diversity in the United States with a focus on a minority group. And um, I think that had an impact on me trying to think about diversity and um, the nature of social intelligence in a multicultural society. Mm. Um, so that links both an interest in morality or ethics and with an interest in cultural diversity. But there are, there are other inf influences like that throughout one's early life. I can remember going to visit one of my grandfathers who was an Orthodox Jew who belonged to a Orthodox synagogue in Brooklyn. And when I visited him, he would take me by foot to his synagogue, walking through the streets of Brooklyn in those days in Bensonhurst. Um, it was itself an exotic experience with kosher butcher shops and mm -hmm. uh, Hasidim on the street with their Rebbe davening on the street, um, going into a uh, Orthodox synagogue where um, all sorts of rituals were going on, which themselves or good grist for anthropological, the anthropological imagination, sex separation with women upstairs and men downstairs, men in prayer of various kinds. One was faced with the question of difference and how to make sense of it and what kind of judgments to make about it. And, you know, that was as a child and young teenager. Um, I can remember, you know, certain literature that I think probably had an impact on me. Um, mm. For example, I remember reading a book as probably in early early adolescence um, called My Glorious Brothers, written by the author Howard Fast, which was an historical novel about the Maccabee Uprising, um, uh, you know, which is B.C. We're talking about what, second century B.C., um, against um, essentially... Antiochus IV, who was a general of Alexander the Great, who became the emperor in that area, which included Jerusalem, Syria, including what is now Syria, Jerusalem. Um, and he um, was trying to Hellenize the Jewish people. And within the Jewish community, there were factions. And there was, I suppose, what would be roughly equivalent to the Enlightenment subset of the Jewish population. Mm. who had been Hellenized and did not believe in Torah-based customs. And you had a, essentially a fundamentalist, religious, huge section of the Jewish population who believed in and were devoted to Torah-based practices, such as a Sabbath day, prohibitions on the eating of pork, the circumcision of um, sons on the eighth day after birth, um, it also included a kind of insular attitude in which you didn't want to marry out to non-Jews or even interact with them particularly. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the uh, Syrian Greek Hellenized leader, along with the secular Hellenized Jewish elite, essentially tried to stamp out and impose Hellenic, Hellenistic civilization on the more Orthodox Jews producing an uprising, which is known as the Maccabee Rebellion, 
and is celebrated today with the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah, mm-hmm. which has become a uh, kind of bleached, I suppose, enlightenment, enlightenment interpreted uh, event in which it's now seen as a defense of religious liberty and as though the Orthodox Jews of that day um, were upholding the First Amendment of the Bill of Rights. But in fact, when you look carefully at it, it ends up being a rather orthodox fundamentalist uprising in defense of what, if you are a secular humanist or if you were one of the Hellenized Jews at that time or Antiochus, would view as irrational, um, um, uh, excessively religiously debased devotional practices based on a sacred text. So at what point did you, it, it sounds like you've always kind of had your interest in um, morality alongside anthropology developing together. At what point did you start to kind of conceptualize the three ethics in your career? Well, of course, the experience in India had a major impact on my thinking about the moral domain. But uh, my interest in going to India in the first place was to see what it was like to see the world from the native point of view of the so-called, that's a a phrase used in anthropology, seeing things from the native point of view, which is one of the things one tries to achieve when you're doing field work. I wanted to see how the world would look from the point of view of a society that inverted some of the values I was most familiar with from my own upbringing, one of which was equality. And so um, I wanted to go to a place where they had a well-worked-out notion of hierarchy and viewed it as a moral concept and thought of society as um, legitimately organized in hierarchical relationships. Um, so I was interested in caste, for example, at that point, as an example, in caste as an example of a hierarchical system, and I wanted to try to understand how it worked. Um, in any case, um, when I got to India, um, originally I studied caste, but then Kohlberg's theory came along, and there were aspects of Larry Kohlberg's theory that struck me as missing the moral force behind uh, the historical, ethical communities I was studying in what was a, let's call it an orthodox Hindu temple town, um, where basically the community is there because a divine family lives in a local temple and people come from all over the country to have audiences with gods and goddesses for various reasons. And the community uh, consists of a large number of social groups where people do think of themselves not as individuals liberated from the social order, but very much think about their sense of identity in terms of a status or role that they have in a highly differentiated community um, where different families and different caste communities have different functions they serve in a kind of holistic operation of this community. So it includes those subset of Brahmins who can read sacred texts and perform rituals in the temple, which who are different from those subsets of Brahmins who cook the food that is fed to the gods in in the temple. Um, And you can go on and on looking at different functions different communities have and are serving. Um, it doesn't feel like um, they're doing it just because it's a personal preference. It doesn't feel like they're doing it for, because they think this is just an arbitrary set of rules. They believe that they are part of a broader moral order. Mm -hmm. And um, I started interviewing. Um, I did some Kohlbergian interviews and indeed I, um, there's a, uh, Nancy Muke and I wrote up in de- a detailed analysis of one Kohlbergian interview, which we sent to Larry Kohlberg, and he coded it, we examined it carefully, and it led me to feel, and I think he even to some extent felt that the, the formal classification scheme wasn't capturing something in the way people were talking, that they in fact had a sense of an objective moral order, even though 
that objective moral order was not necessarily the same moral order that Kohlberg thought were the core elements of the moral order. Um, so it was the experience basically collecting enormous number of interviews in India where they were talking about their own customs and practices. Um, and then doing a classification and coding of the kinds of concepts and reasons that were offered and seeing how they went together across a large number of informants, both men and women, both adults and children, both people from Brahmanical castes and people from um, uh, what, what then were called, what are called scheduled castes now, but are locally called untouchable castes. Mm. Um, and um, we induced essentially the big three looking at that material. Um, it led to a formulation in which a central principle is that um, the illiberality of a custom or practice is not necessarily a measure of its immorality. And it led us to think that we needed a broader conception of the moral domain than the conception that had been built into or just simply assumed in much of the development, the um, moral development literature in, in psychology in the United States and Europe, where the moral domain basically gets reduced to a small set of concepts like harm, rights, justice, equality. Mm. Um, and we were finding other concepts which had the mark of the moral. I mean, when I say the mark of the moral, they were felt to put you in touch with things of value. They were thought to be objective, not simply things you invented. Um, they were highly motivating of behavior. They, they, they were thought to be important. Um, they were not things you could alter by consensus uh, and things of that type. So, um, and in, in developing and theorizing the big three, the big three essentially being what we view as the subdomains of the broad domain of morality. It involves what we call an ethics of autonomy. That's one of the subdomains, and that's the one that gets emphasized and is highly salient in the literature in moral psychology, um, or had been. Uh, it's broader now because of the work of a number of people, including um, Jacob Hickman and, of course, Jonathan Haidt, Lena Jensen, and Joan Miller, and, 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 uh, and many others. Um, but in any case, there's next to the ethics of autonomy, something that's called an ethics of community. And then there's an ethics of divinity. Those are the big three. Now, the core concept is that these are all about different aspects of the human self. And the ethics of autonomy is about or is built on a conception of the self or an aspect of the self thought of as a preference structure. When you do interviews with American subjects, for example, when we were doing our research, which was some of which was done in Hyde Park, some of which was done in this Orthodox temple town, one of the things that was very striking is that the concept of what I want comes up all the time in the American interviews. That's not something that is said very much at all, if at all, in the Indian interviews. Hmm. Um, and it reflects the notion that I'm, I'm a preference structure and having the things I want. Life is about having the things I want, and I should be free to have the things I want as long as my pursuit of those things doesn't interfere with other people's wants and what, you know, what they'd like to have. Uh, and that ends up being, you know, just omnipresent in discourse and in the way in which um, adults re react to children. I mean, the, the, the image, you know, the, um, the frequent occurrence of an adult in an American household walking up to a two or three year old and saying, what, what do you want for dinner tonight? you know, is an early communication of that sort. It basically sure. makes salient the idea that you are a preference structure, that you should have wants to be a developed person is to know what your wants are and pursue them, and that you can count on the rest of the world uh, know, knowing that you have wants, respecting that you have wants, encouraging you to pursue your wants and so forth. Mm. It doesn't operate that way in the Orthodox Hindu temple town I'm talking about. And what never occurred, almost never occurred in the interviews in the Orthodox Hindu Temple Town was the invocation of rights. It's my right to. There was a lot of invocation of what's my duty. There was a lot of sensitivity 
not to what I want, but to who am I as what's my role or status within this broader community? And what are the briefs and responsibilities that go with it? Um, There was an enormous amount of attention to the difference between in-groups and out-groups. There was a lot of attention to hierarchical interdependency, parent and child, often over a lifetime, um, higher higher castes who had certain functions and lower castes who also had important functions and they needed each other and in ways, you know, the Brahmins by virtue of their closeness to divinity and the fact that they're seeking a kind of sanctification of their bodies all the time um, are not going to want to wash their own clothing, for example. So there's a caste of washermen who wash the clothing and those Brahmins depend on those washermen to wash those clothing. And, and, you know, and, and the washermen are somewhat lower in status because they're washing other people's dirty clothing, um, in, including the menstrual clothing. At least traditionally, that's how it was thought of. Um, that was thought to in some way be desanctifying or polluting in some way of your own holiness or purity. So all of these kinds of things are coming up in the interviews. The notion was then that there's an ethics of autonomy focused on the self as thought of as a preference structure. And it has certain core values or, con- or moral concepts that go with it, uh, like you know, harm, rights, justice, liberty, all meant to protect your pursuit of your wants in some way. Hmm. Um, the ethics of community, however, had a different concept of self, something more like what I just hinted at, which is thinking of yourself, your identity, as status-based within some complex interdependent social group with boundaries around it and with hierarchical differentiation. And there, the moral concepts ended up being things like hierarchy, interdependency, um, loyalty, duty. Um, And then the ethics of divinity had, again, a somewhat different aspect of the self that was emphasized, which was some kind of notion of the self um, as having a spiritual, inherently having a spiritual aspect, um, that, you know, the, the I, your, your own ego was an extension of the world soul. And, you know, one of the formulas for thinking about Hinduism is the notion that Atman equals Brahman, where Atman is the personal soul and Brahman is the world soul. Hmm. So it's like every person is thought to have this, it's a very, it's a Gnostic image. If you go back and look at religious traditions, the Gnostic tradition basically um, views the creation as the fall and the, pure, the world of pure spirit um, ends up being embodied in a body. Um, and of course, the ultimate goal for virtuosos in this tradition is to drop their body and get back to being pure spirit. But you are there encased in materiality in your body, situated in a particular location at a particular time. And you strive to uh, maintain the purity of the body to the extent possible. There's the development of an image of the body as a temple with a spirit dwelling in it. And when you start having a belief system like that or an ontology like that, then you think a lot and deeply about what you can put in that temple. Like, what do you eat? What's going into your body? What food would be appropriate to pure spirit? Um, and there are a bunch of reasons that vegetarianism is seen as higher than bloody meat eating a la George Washington. Okay? Um, and it's no longer simply personal preference. There's a whole set of very deep moral judgments on the purity, sanctity dimension that get made about the details of everyday life, including what you eat, how it was cooked, who are you eating with when you do it all of which is related to some notion of maintaining the sanctity of the body viewed as a temple for an indwelling spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you get to the ethics of divinity, then there are notions like um, natural order, sacred order, and their relationship to each other, purity, pollution, sanctity, cleanliness. Um, you know, the, the, we, we sometimes hear the expression that um, cleanliness is next to godliness which may look old-fashioned to secular humanists who do not theorize and um, invest themselves in their identities in an ethics of divinity. But nevertheless, there are traces of that 
in um, in the ethics of divinity, and you can certainly see how it operates when you're in a Hindu temple town of the type I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. So that basically is the structure of uh, the big three. The core notions being this focus on different aspects of the self. When you um, um, it doesn't it all. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Go, go ahead. ahead. <laughs> well, I was going to say the core as- the core notion being this focus on aspects of the self. I think broadly, what everyone's got everything to some degree, but they get and they end up being elaborated and institutionalized in very different degrees in different historical ethical communities. Um, and um, it has led again to a debate which has gone on now is going on in in um, moral psychology about monism versus pluralism. The big three is part of um, a pluralistic approach to the moral domain um, and a resistance to reducing it um, to um, the ethics of autonomy. Um, Seeing the ethics of autonomy is part of it, but the reduction to the ethics of autonomy, I think, uh, from the point of view of pluralists is viewed as um, a reduction which creates its own problems. Um, and of course the, the reduction is sometime an extreme reduction down to sim- a single principle of harm. Um, and there are debates about whether or not you can actually even define the concept of harm in a way that makes it useful. Or if you end up stretching the concept of harm, um, enormously such that harm ends up being anything that makes you feel, um, you know, upset or offends you when you even know what's going on, that probably is no longer useful. It probably is more useful to start actually looking at the multiple kinds of moral concepts that operate in the moral domain broadly conceived. Uh, If you're a pluralist, I think your general position is that there are these multiple goods. There are many moral principles. They're not all compatible with each other. They're often in conflict. Uh, and different historical ethical traditions have privileged some over others, and um, and they get institutionalized in particular ways. So that's 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 a broad sketch. Um, I hope that yeah, that's clear enough. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Um, so, in what areas are you seeing a push for monism? You mentioned that that seems to be kind of the the bigger pressure in um, the social sciences right now, or at least psychology. Well, I think, I, I, you know, I think I, I, I was referencing there, for example, John Hyde and um, uh, Kurt Gray have had debates about this very issue. And there is a tradition um, that opposes the pluralistic perspective, which tries to argue that the fundamental core concept of all moral judgments is some version of a principle of harm. Um, <laughs> Yeah, actually, the, I just interviewed Kurt Gray a couple weeks ago exactly about that. <laughs> now and, I wish and, I, I had and, and I think I think it's an interesting issue. But let me let me actually um, say what I think some of the problems are when you have it uh, too narrow a view of the moral domain. Yes, and um, part of it relates to um, well. Let me step back. I want I want to say something about my view of Larry Kohlberg's effort um, and his scheme. Um, And I, you know, although I was a critic of Larry Kohlberg, I've come to admire his sense of moral realism um, or desire to think of morality in a moral realist way. Um, And when I say that, I'm talking about people who would call themselves moral cognitivists and who basically view moral judgments as judgments that person P ought to do X under such and such circumstances. That's what a moral judgment amounts to, that someone ought to, someone of a particular status under these circumstances ought to do such and such. Where the doing of whatever that is of the X by that person in those circumstances is thought to be the right thing to do because it is thought to promote some objective good or be a realization or manifestation of some law of moral reason. I think that's the basic approach of people who are cognitivists and that approach differs greatly 
from other people who study moral psychology, who I think for the most part either would call are emotivists and may or may not be aware of it, some of them are, where they view moral judgments as basically mindless, affect-laden, visceral reactions of approval or disapproval, like that disgusts me, or I'd rate that a 10 on a grossness scale or something. Mm-hmm. And there what's lost is a clear identification of what makes an expressive reaction like that disgusts me, a moral reaction. And um, if you're a cognitivist, that just looks like subjective expressionism. It doesn't look like a judgment about the moral domain because it tends to reject the idea that there really is a independently existing moral domain. It's a reduction basically to affect-laden visceral reactions many of which are habits that you've learned from growing up in a particular society, um, which may or may not have moral force. Um, So that's a big distinction within the field. And I think what Larry Kohlberg was trying to do in his, uh, I'm not going to talk about it in terms of his six stages. I'll talk about it in terms of the three main levels in his developmental picture, Mm -hmm. each of which had two subsets, two substages. But he basically was trying to look at the move from the subjective to the objective in steps. And his basic you know, pursuit was, um, how do people define what's right or what's good or what's wrong or what's bad? And his notion was that it goes through stages developmentally or in ontogeny, where you start with a highly subjective orientation Um, and what's good or what's right is basically, I like it. If I like it, it's good. Or if I like it, it's right. Um, And then you move to another level in which instead of I like it, it becomes we like it. So all of a sudden you become aware of what your parents like or what, you know, the legislature in your country likes or what the received practices are. And, you haven't moved out of subjectivity. You've just gone from into your subjectivity to the collective subjectivity. So consensus ends up being the basis for a judgment of what's right and wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for Kohlberg, the true move to a moral understanding was when you reject the subjectivism and realize that there's an objective moral charter and try to understand what its principles are. But the crucial thing for a cognitivist is the notion that there is an objective moral charter, that there are moral absolutes, there are laws of moral reason, and you don't just invent them. They're not consensus-based. In fact, for Kohlberg, or for any moral realist, those principles allow you to even criticize the behavior of your own in-group if your in-group is no longer engaged in practices that are expressions or manifestations of those practices. Mm-hmm. Now, I th- and now Kohlberg went ahead and ended up defining that higher stage, his post-conventional reasoning stage, with what I view as too limited a set of moral concepts, something like a liberal ethics of autonomy kind of conception of what it meant to really understand the moral order. Mm-hmm. And it's about that that I was criticizing him but not about his moral realism. What I think Elliot Turiel and Larry Nucci did, and Smetana and a number of other people who worked in that tradition, um, all of whom have been engaged in very fruitful conversations about these topics, um, I think they um, essentially took the vertical three levels of Kohlberg and flipped it on its side and made it horizontal. Right. And basic and basically said, no, there's no pre-competent stage here. All right from the early on in life, there's an understanding of um, um, an objective moral order. And because their conception of that moral order is so narrow, focused on, you know, justice, welfare, rights, maybe equality, mm-hmm. everything that is in um, society where you have 
people with roles and statuses and interdependent relationships, um, having a sense of duty and moral obligation, all that gets lumped into what they call the conventional. It's seen as the we like it category. You know, it's, it, it's not seen as having a connection to the moral order. It's just a declaration that you should do this. It's consensus based. It's mere convention. And then they have what they call, I guess, the, the personal, um, which is the I like it. You know, it's like George Washington liked good roast beef. I'm Solomon like fish. It's a highly subject, the high, it's the most extreme subjective aspect of the Kohlbergian scheme. And that distinction between the moral, the conventional, and the personal, I actually see as basically picking up Kohlberg's three levels and just seeing them as co-present over ontogeny. Um, and in my view, um, it, um, it, it fails to understand the moral force of what I'm calling the ethics of community and the ethics of divinity. Um, and I do think it's tied to a highly individualistic um, tradition. I know Larry, you know, I think Larry, because um, I recognize the, that the ethics of autonomy is a preference structure, um, that, that, of, that there is agreement that people have preferences and desires all over the world, um, but they don't necessarily um, see those preferences and desires in and of themselves validating. And I would argue that the personal domain, I guess I, my summary, my argument would be that the personal domain in the Turiel, Nucci, Smetana tradition is not a separate domain from the moral. It's an, it's, it, 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 in and of itself is a subset of the ethics of autonomy, which is a moral domain. And it basically is liberty and expressive equality, privileged, um, and why it's separated out as a, a different logical type than the moral is not clear to me because it seems to me it is a subset of the moral. Hmm. And then what happens to the conventional is that it gets seen as arbitrary and unconnected to the moral order. And there, I think, um, it doesn't give you the theoretical equipment you need to understand historical moral communities. Um, because the way to understand, which I view is what, you know, that's what I mean by a culture. And um, uh, I think that what's missing is um, you to recognize that there are, I would argue, there are moral absolutes, but they live in history. It's the, you know, the, the, the study of comparative ethics is the study of the fate of moral absolutes in history and how they have been, how they come alive through history. Because the moral absolutes are abstractions. They're, they're abstract principles, which are not livable until you fill them in with an enormous amount of detail and local content. You can say, treat like cases alike and different cases differently. That I view as a moral principle, and and I view that as a moral absolute. I don't think the you know it's, it's not it's a it's a it's a deep moral intuition, in the sense of something you know without deliberate reflection, but it's knowledge. It's the way you know that two parallel lines can't enclose a square. Okay, you don't deliberate on that. You just know it, and it's part of the world of reason that to. Uh, and it's reasonable to hold that two parallel lines cannot enclose the square or that uh, a part can't be greater than the whole. These are not things you go through a deliberative process to reach a conclusion. They're immediately obvious. They're uh, self-evident in, in, in a genuine sense. It's not illusory self-evidence. It's not simply declaring something it's self-evident that isn't. They are self-evident. And one of the reasons that um, moral intuitions are important is because they make a claim to validity on you and you, 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 you don't have arguments to make about them because they're obvious. There's nothing more to say. Okay? Um, the, the, one of the problems that I think has arisen in some of the literature is um, the way in which the concept of dumbfounding um, has been interpreted and gotten applied. Um, there are points in any argument where things come to an end. It's sort of a terminus point, and it's a terminus point because you've arrived at a genuine moral intuition in the sense of something, the denial of which is not thinkable. 
Um, and therefore, you don't go through and have to speak about it anymore. It just is. So if someone says to you, no, I think you should treat different cases alike and like cases differently, what would, you, what would your response be? I mean, you think for, wait a minute, do you understand the English language? Let me clarify the meaning of those terms. And, or are you joking? Um, but there's not a credible way to um, make a valid argument that you should treat like cases alike and uh, differently in different cases alike. Or, you know, other moral absolutes. Um, you should protect the vulnerable who are in your charge. Right. Or you should um, um, assist someone in urgent need if it's a very little cost to yourself. Or, um, you know, when choosing between two goods, choose the greater good over the, less, you know, the, the lesser good. Or um, when faced with two equal goods, pursue the one that's more likely to happen. I mean, mm -hmm. these are sort of fundamental laws of moral reason, and they are universal, but they're also outside of history because you then have to figure out how do you apply them. In any particular historical moral tradition, there are going to be over a long period of time, an understanding of what differences are relevant and what likenesses are relevant. And they're not going to be the same in different traditions. And mm -hmm. so unless you step into the tradition, recognize that there is a lot that is historical in any moral community, uh, but realize that the reason it's a moral community is because you can trace a connection to moral absolutes and the way they have been given character um, and made manifest and realized locally and in history, then you don't understand the moral basis of it. And I feel that a little too much um, has been made of, I, I, I'm not sure the right points have been, inferences have been drawn from the fact that there are moral absolutes and people recognize their objectivity and universality. Um, um, and they are different from the existing customs of any particular group, but those existing customs are not arbitrary and they're not lacking in moral force because people in those historical moral communities not only feel at home in those communities, but they feel at home in part because they feel connected to a moral order and are experiencing value which comes from those moral absolutes, but in a local form or manifestation. So if I'm uh, following you correctly, you're, it seems like you're suggesting that what allows moral realism to go hand in hand with pluralism are the everyday, rich, complex environments that the morality is living out in? I would say that moral realism is compatible with pluralism to the extent that the objective moral order is not a single thing, okay? Um, that there are multiple values and goods that are there. There are multiple principles. They're sometimes in conflict with each other. So any tradition of value or any historical ethical community or moral community is going to make choices between a multiplicity of agonistic, this is how, um, Isaiah Berlin, who is a famous moral pluralist, would talk about it. Um, the, these different goods and values can be in conflict with each other, and how those conflicts are resolved has some space for choice. Is Isaiah um, Berlin? You said is is he yes. is he the incommensurate value guy, or is that somebody else? No, I think he would argue for some some important degree of incommensurality in the sense that there would be no common denominator for scaling those different values. You okay. wouldn't reduce it to a, a single notion like utility or, uh, or harm or whatever. You'd see them as distinct um, and all having the status of being objective. Um, the recognition of them inherently is a recognition of something of value, um, but you can't have them all simultaneously within any tradition. That's part of the, I suppose, if you were not, if you're speaking like a Gnostic, you would see that as the tragedy of the fall, that you can't have all those goods. Where you're, you're sitting right here, right yeah. now, and you're inheriting a tradition, and uh, that tradition has been built up over a long period of time with many ancestors, 
and accommodations were made and some values got peripheralized and others got privileged. And those are the ones that are ongoing in your world. And you're in that world. And in that world, you have a status and a role. And that role and status comes with certain briefs and obligations, which lead you to feel connected to the moral order, um, but only a subset of it in any case. Hmm. So um, with respect to kind of Jonathan Haidt's work, I, I understand that... It, um, it sounds like you think that he's done a great service to psychology and to people thinking about it, but it does seem like one point of departure between you and John would be that moral realism piece. Is that fair? Well, I think, um, you know, it, I, I hesitate to say, cause I think John has, um, probably rethought of some of his earlier formulations and I'm, not exactly sure where he would come out on the issue I'm about to discuss right now, but before I get to it, um, I do think that um, he has been fabulous in taking up the pluralistic side of the big three mm. and, um, and engaging in arguments about monistic, you know, with people who believe in monistic reductions of one type or another. He also, um, I think for a variety of reasons, decided to um, he decided to try and link cultural and moral psychology to evolutionary psychology. Mm. And um, while accepting a broad definition of the moral domain and recognizing that the illiberality of a custom or practice is not necessarily a measure of its immorality, um, he wanted to essentially link the big three or what he ultimately subdivided the big three and it became the big five and now it's the big six, looking at particular standalone values that were part of the big three picture. Um, But he ended up moving in a very functional direction uh, Mm -hmm. of the Darwinian sort, trying to see what the adaptive advantage was of commitment to particular uh, moral goods. and once you start becoming functional that way, um, you know, then you're faced with asking, what is the Darwinian ethic or morality? And on the surface, it would be what's good is whatever gets your genes into the next generation, like reproductive success ends up being the definition of what's moral. For some people, that produces a travesty of morality um, because there are many things that might be reproductively successful, which human beings would not see as compatible with uh, the laws of moral reason or moral goods. But in any case, that's the direction it went in. And I think in going in that direction, um, what got set to the side was this focus on different aspects of the self, like a preference structure or having an identity tied up with status and role. Um, or the idea that there's a spiritual aspect to human innate consciousness, which plays an important part in these systems. Uh, and then the values that are associated with them became standalone values and got seen as foundational. And I think that what gets left out there is not that John would necessarily leave it out in principle, but I think there's less attention to the belief systems and the ontologies that stand beyond um, those values, because it's both beliefs and values that make up the package deal that is any particular historical ethic, ethical community's moral tradition or, or value tradition. And then I suppose the thing that um, perhaps he's rethought this, perhaps not, but there, uh, he was talking for a while about moral intuitions as though that somehow established that at the base of moral judgments was emotion or affect or visceral reactions, that it was somehow different from thought and reason. And this contrast then between affect and deliberative reason got set up, which I think is a false contrast. Um, And I I think it's a mistake to think of moral intuitions that way. Um, There's a tradition within moral philosophy, 19th century moral philosophy, in which moral intuitions of the type I was talking about, the examples I gave before, like you should treat like cases alike and different cases differently, um, are not viewed as affect-based. They're viewed as part of the domain of reason. 
Um, and that's how I think of moral intuitions. I think they are within reason. And I think reasoning is not necessarily slow and deliberative any more than immediately recognizing that two parallel lines can't enclose a square is not slow. That's a quick judgment you make, and it's part of the domain of reason. Okay? Um, and similarly, fast processing is not necessarily emotional or visceral or affect-laden. All sorts of things happen incredibly quickly without them being in the domain of the emotion. So the fact that you are making a fast judgment, uh, I don't think is, is, is connected logically to an emotional or visceral affective reaction. Um, you know, like the one I just gave, but I mean, just think about what we're doing right now. We're talking to each other and we are processing each other's language and producing language without deliberation. It's not like I'm sitting here thinking in ahead about what I'm going to say. I'm just saying it and you're able to decode it because you have you know, a phonetical system, a, a semantic system and a grammatical system, which allows you to listen to language and decode it at incredibly fast rates, as fast as any emotional reaction you might have. So I think that there was an unfortunate conflation made between um, fast processing and affect or emotion, as though that was not in the domain of reason. It couldn't be in the domain of reason. And this equation of moral intuitions with emotion um, I think is, is was was an unfortunate misdirection, um, but that all that said, uh, you know, I think John has, you know, pressed in a direction that allows people who are evolutionary psychologists to think about the moral domain. Um, I just don't think moving in that direction um, carries forward the um, focus on important focus on the aspects of the self, which I see as core theoretical concepts and psychological concepts um, when thinking about the big three. Mm. So um, what are you continuing to work on now? And what do you think needs to happen as, um, maybe I shouldn't frame it that way, but what do you think would be a fruitful direction for the science of morality to take? All right. Um, before I go there, I want to um, tell you about an experience which I actually wrote about many years ago. Yeah, please. Um, with, with my daughter, who at the time was five or six years old, as I recall. Um, she's now in her 40s, but um, she, then she was five or six. And it was a Saturday morning, um, about 11 o'clock. And she was, had not gotten dressed for the day. She was in her night clothes. And I was alone with her at home and said to her, Lauren, it's time to get dressed. And she looked at me and said, no, I don't want, here we go. I don't want to get dressed. Notice these, I don't want to get dressed. Personal preference. Um, and I repeated it. It's time to get dressed. She resisted. She then resisted again. She then said, why should I get dressed? I'm not going to see anyone till five o'clock. I don't want to get dressed. Um, her father thought there was something that, um, what should we say, inclined me to think that um, this five or six-year-old should not be spending the day in her pajamas or night clothes. And I wanted her to get dressed. Um, and at that moment, I realized that I had a very limited set of options, given that I myself, of course, have grown up in an ethics of autonomy subculture, as probably most academics have, many academics have. And the moves I could make seemed to me to reduce to three. I could get into an ethics of autonomy argument with her, like harm, rights, and justice. And um, I quickly realized I was going to lose that argument um, <laughs> because at age five or six, she already had incorporated that whole apparatus, and she was usually ahead of me on many things. <laughs> and you know, she was going to tell me about it's her body, it's her right to do what she wants with her body. She's 
you know, what harm is done staying in my clothes all day long? I'm not seeing anyone but five. I was going to lose that. Um, and then I thought, well, what are my options if I don't do that? Um, and they seemed to be two. I could engage in, I guess, what I'll call a Turiel, Nucci, Smetana, thin <laughs> conventionalist argument. Um, in which, what would I say? Well, you know, don't ask me to explain it too much because it's really sort of arbitrary. And, you know, I, I don't quite know why we do it, but, you know, we have these rules of etiquette, etiquette and decorum. And, you know, we, you know, that's the done thing. You just have to do that. And I realized if I did that, she'd hold me in contempt. Because, I mean, she, she thought I was sort of a smart person and intelligent and thoughtful and you know, there I would be giving this weak rationalization that she'd see through in a second. Um, and then, of course, what was the third move? Power assertion. You know, like, I'm, you know, I'm bigger than you. I can discipline you. I can somehow, you know, take steps that will force you to do this. And it struck me that you learn some, I learned something from that, which I think it's one of the things that produces a kind of rebellion against the social order. Because when you lack the moral language to talk about social customs, um, then the customs just feel like they're impositions. And I'm sure many people, I certainly remember, well, why can't I eat with my hands? Why don't I eat with silver? Why does the fork have to be on the left side, not on the right side? And you know, at that point, you start having contempt and wanting to be liberated from this imposed order on you. Mm. Uh, um, and then, of course, the, the third move was to just see it as a power order, domination, tyranny. Um, and I do think that that's one of the things that happens when you grow up in an ethics of autonomy world. You become a liberationist. You lack um, the language um, or even the intuition, ultimately, that there is something connecting your historical ethic community and all of its rich customs, traditions procedures and so forth to the moral order. And, you know, I told that story um, to a Indian friend of mine who I've collaborated with, Usha Menon. And I remember her saying that she couldn't imagine such a conversation in her own family. And, hmm. you know, that somehow, you know, I, I, I'm not sure exactly what moral language she would have used for trying to explain to her children why they should get dressed. I think she probably assumed that the issue wouldn't even arise because of some recognition of the natural temporal structure of day and night and civility and the station you have and the proper way to behave and dress and present yourself. Mm. Um, but it, it struck me as relevant to whether or not you see the moral order as broader or narrower. And the more you narrow it, the less language you have because you all you have are liberated individuals with their wants and preferences, you know, who only enter into things through voluntary choice, um, which is very different from the way actual social orders are structured. You know, if anything, if we've learned anything from, you know, 3,000, 2,000, 2,500 years of reflection on the social order, um, we understand that everywhere you look, there's going to be in-groups and out-groups. There are going to be tribes. Everywhere you look, there's going to be hierarchy. There are going to be roles and statuses. People's sense of identity and dignity is going to be tied up with the performance of those things. And they don't feel that they're unconnected to the moral order. Hmm. Um, as far as your question about where to go, well, I mean, the place I've gone is looking at um, cultural collisions that emerge um, when people migrate from the southern world into Western liberal democracies in Europe and North America, mm. bringing with them practices um, that mainstream populations in those societies don't like, and um, they're confronted with difference. And these are often people who have bumper stickers on their cars saying things like, celebrate diversity. Um, I mean, I remember driving some years ago behind a car on Martha's Vineyard. It was a Volvo station wagon, of course. <laughs> and it had a bumper sticker saying, you know, celebrate diversity. And I was driving behind that car for several miles, sitting there wondering whether I should follow the person home and interview them. Um, 
which I didn't. But the you know the interview I was imagining was saying you so you want somebody to celebrate diversity. I wonder what you actually mean by that. And uh, let me tell you about some of the diversity there is in the world and some of the kinds of diversity that anthropologists have studied. Mm-hmm. So you know, so celebrate diversity. Uh, how about polygamy? Okay. Um, you know, how about a different conception of gender relations? How about a different notion of how to discipline your children? How about, um, you know, peoples who believe that there should be gender equity with regard to circumcision so that, you know, there shouldn't just be Jews and Muslims circumcising their sons. They believe that there should be gender equality and both girls and boys should be part of whatever is involved in circumcision. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, how do you feel about that? And, um, you, know, but, you know, let's say you were faced with a group that, believed in gender equity and had a less invasive procedure for the girls and the boys. If you allow the boys to do it, what would you say about having the girls do it too? Why or why not? And you could, you know, it's quite obvious they wouldn't be celebrating diversity uh, when you started raising these questions. And so that's what I'm thinking about these days. I'm thinking about the question, what's on people's un-American cultural activities list? Um, uh, Seamus Powers, who's a recent PhD at the University of Chicago, and I, and I have been talking about a, developing a questionnaire for studying that, and it's the kind of thing that can be done in any country. You know, what's mm-hmm. a what's on your un-Norwegian cultural activities list? What's on your you know, mm-hmm. on and on and on? Um, and the goal there is to try and understand for different groups of people in different national traditions or different countries, what are their ethical and legal inheritances and how much does it give them scope for allowing genuine cultural diversity? Um, And so I'm thinking about what social intelligence amounts to in a multicultural world um, and trying to see whether or not one can articulate a big tent conception of a multicultural society with special attention to the United States, mm-hmm. um, which has become, um, you know, the contemporary f- uh, events are catching up with this agenda. So we're now faced with whether or not we're going to think about the United States as a, a multicultural society where something like constitutional patriotism is what unites us and gives us scope for considerable diversity or whether we're going to have a more ethno-national conception of the country, which may have a narrower view of what, you know, or not, has a smaller tent view of, of uh, what can be let in. That's, so that issue is on my mind. Could you tell me a little bit more about that latter issue? Are you talking about kind of political tensions going on right now or... Some other yeah, no, of course, I'm talking about the debates about immigration and, um, um, you know, let me, let, me, let me put it this way. The broadest question, I suppose, on my mind, and it's one that's been on my mind for some time, is, is it possible to be a robust cultural pluralist? I view myself as a robust cultural pluralist. Mm. Is it possible to be a robust cultural pluralist and a dedicated political liberal at the same time or not? Okay. Um, and, or in alternative ways, what, what version of political liberalism is most compatible with robust cultural pluralism? And I think we're discovering that not all versions of liberalism are compatible with robust cultural pluralism. In fact, there are liberal imperialist traditions that are quite convinced that people living in other societies are backward, uneducated, barbaric, um, and that their customs of one type or another, whether it has to do with how they raise children or what their gender relations or political authority um, um, should be changed and that we should intervene and use our power, both soft and hard, to make the world more like us. Um, That's a much more uniformitarian view out of liberalism. And... um, you know, so you know what what is the what for a vision of of liberalism is going to say it's just fine for um, Satmar Hasidim living in upstate New York 
to uh, have a sexual division of labor where men spend 12 hours a day studying the Torah and women uh, are dedicated to producing large Jewish families. Mm. Um, and, you know, is that okay in the United States? How about the Amish, you know, um, you know, where they have certainly big differentiated sexual differentiation. They don't want to send their kids to school and they don't want to participate in the contemporary world in all sorts of ways. Is that okay? okay. Um, um, I'm, I'm particularly struck by a comment from Je Thomas Jefferson. Um, in 1820, I believe, the second Jewish synagogue was consecrated in the United States. It was in Savannah, Georgia. And the rabbi, um, I think his name was Demato or Demoto, um, sent his sermon to James Madison and Thomas Jefferson. And I've seen Thomas Jefferson's one paragraph response to the sermon. He wrote back to the rabbi. So this is 1820. This is late in Jefferson's life. Um, and he said, isn't it interesting? He's, he he congratulated, him on, uh, congratulated him on the consecration of the, of the synagogue. And he said, isn't it interesting that when it comes to the d domain of religion, um, and I think, I think the implication is the domain of, of culture too, uh, the principle ought to be the opposite of what it is in the civic realm. The principle ought to be divided we stand. Mm. And I suppose that's what I'm, thinking about a lot. To what extent can we imagine a multicultural society in which we actually have a live and let live attitude and do have genuine diversity, not, ju you know, not, not just the appreciation, not celebrating other people's you know, food because we like their cuisine or thinking their colorful dress, but being willing to at least suffer the existence of people who really have a very different view of all sorts of fundamental issues, including gender relations and how to raise children and political authority. Um, you know, to what extent can we, can we have a divided we stand attitude? Um, because if we don't and we press for uniformity and have dominant groups believe that their way should be everyone's way, or that everything should be, everyone who, who's a minority group should be melted down into the majority group, um, then I think we're going to produce blowback, resistance, resentment, and it, it's, it's, it, it's, um, it's going to be a very different kind of society. In any case, those are the kinds of problematics that I'm thinking about these days. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Rick. I really appreciate um, your time. This has been a fascinating conversation. I've learned a lot, and um, I really also appreciated all of your colorful illustrations and examples that you've gathered over the years. Um, anyway, thank you so much. Well, and good luck with your own work and collaboration. Thank Thanks. you. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you have questions, comments, suggestions, or requests, contact me at www.moralsciencepodcast.com. The Moral Science Podcast is sponsored by ERA Inc., a research and design think tank that's reinventing how people interact with each other. Music throughout the program is My Kruby by Kindswider and can be found at freemusicarchive.org.